0: chapter three of upper canada sketches by thomas conant this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter three our young wild land the free the proud uncrushed by power unawed by fear her knee to none but god is bowed for nature teaches freedom here from gloom and sorrow to light and flowers expands this heritage of ours life with its myriad hopes pursuits spreads sails rears roofs and gathers fruits but past two fleeting centuries back this land a torpid giant slept wrapped in a mantle thick and black that o'er its mighty frame had crept since stars and angels sang as earth shot from its maker into birth golden autumn days were those when the emigrants long journey was nearing its end provision must first be made for the cattle and horses october was upon them and winter near at Arnall's creek then known as barber's creek they found a flat of marsh grass quite free from the forest trees which then were universal above the water's edge of lake ontario here they pitched their tents the creek and lake forming two sides of a triangle for defense from wolves, leaving one side only to be protected. Salmon would run in November, and the winter's supply of fish could be secured from the creek, and the marsh grass gathered for the stock from the flat at its mouth. The illustration opposite is of the first house built by Roger Conant in Upper Canada. The foundation of it yet remains close by the waters of Lake Ontario. The man in the foreground of the picture is pounding or crushing grain with a burnt-out stump as a mortar, using as a pestle a billet of wood which is attached to a spring-pole, thus raising it easily. There was no mill nearer than Kingston where the corn could be ground. At Port Hope, then called Smith's Creek, in 1806, Elias Smith erected a grist mill, previous to that date the settlers took their grist-by boat to kingston at the foot of lake ontario one hundred ten miles distant the journey occupied several days necessitating their camping on the shores at night at the home by the broad waters of lake ontario the settlers led a truly idyllic life the unerring rifle supplied them with meat the waters with fish and the distant mill with flour until a crop could be grown from the cleared land next season. They spent the days logging, felling the trees, and the nights burning. The bright flames among the trees and against the dark background of the dense forest made a picturesque scene. A singular fact about logging is that the log heaps burn better at night than by day. Therefore, the logging was done in the daytime and the burning by night but to make money in this new country, where there were no neighbors nor any travelers to buy, nor any money to buy with, was a more difficult feat than making a home. Furs and furs only would bring money. Possessing some capital, about $5,000 as already stated, Roger Conant made his way to Montreal by canoe, and there about 1799 had Durham boats built, broad-beamed open flat boats strongly built for rowing and towing these he filled with blankets traps knives guns flints ammunition beads and tomahawks bought in the montreal stores to trade with the indians for furs on page forty eight is an illustration of three durham boats ascending the rapids of the great st lawrence river each towed by three men they were launched above the greater rapids near montreal and hugged the shores while passing the others an axe was always ready to the hand of the man who sat in the boat and steered for should the rapid be too strong and get the mastery of the three men who were towing from the shore the rope was quickly cut and the durham freed shot like a catapult downstream until it was lodged in the first cul-de-sac below it was manifestly a most tediously slow and weary mode of progress. There were no canals built then as now to form an easy highway past the rapids. Once attaining Lake Ontario, they paddled and rowed, still keeping close along shore and camping at some convenient landing place at night. In the illustration on page 65, we have a fair representation of an Indian trading scene the goods brought from montreal in the durham boats have been carried back to a spot a few miles from the lake shore in charge of the trader and his assistants three guns were fired in quick succession upon reaching camp the previous night as a signal for all indians within hearing to come with their furs to trade on the morrow a beaver skin is lying upon the ground an indian is negotiating for a blanket while another is looking at a gun and others are coming in with their furs on their backs a few days trading exhausts the goods brought by the trader he returns home with the furs received in exchange deposits them replenishes his pack and sets out on other trips in different directions until all the goods are exchanged and the following summer the furs are taken to montreal in the same durham boats where gold and silver as well as a further supply of goods are obtained for them there is no record of roger conant having shipped his furs direct to london england as good prices were paid for furs in montreal it is most probable he disposed of them there year after year the trade was continued without interruption it brought wealth to the author's grandsire honestly and fairly obtained the great Hudson's Bay Company maintained a regular chain of trading stations along the north shore of Lake Ontario, as they did in the far west and the Arctic north. The trading stations on Lake Ontario, being near to Quebec and Montreal, and close together, were easily supplied with trading goods. At the period of which we are now writing, when my forefather became an opponent to the great Hudson's Bay Company in the fur trade, 1798 that company had a trading station very near his home only some three miles to the west and on what is now known as bluff point a promontory two miles east of port oshawa this trading station was not fortified but consisted of a well-built commodious log house with flat roof and the corners of the house squared and neatly joined standing upon the promontory it was easily accessible to the boats passing up or down the lake in the spring the boats would come up from montreal generally gaily painted and rowed quite close to shore with song and laughter after making the round of the trading stations of lake ontario they came back in the same manner in the fall laden with furs and montrealward bound here come the hudson bay boats was the word on the day of their arrival During their first years in the wilderness, the visit of these boats was an event in the lives of the settlers. Halcyon days were these for the coureurs du bois, as the Frenchmen were called who manned these boats, who were often traders themselves. However, the influx of settlers and fur traders, such as my forefathers were, presented such a strong opposition to the company that it gradually gave up Upper Canada as an exploiting ground and maintained its hold of regions more inaccessible a princely heritage forsooth all of fertile upper canada to roam over mastery of the indians and a steady stream of gold coming in from the trade in furs this hudson's bay company is one of the marvels of the world its charter was granted by charles the second in sixteen seventy to some favourites And from this inception, it rapidly went on to growth and prosperity, acquiring almost despotic rule over its territories. Its servants never have plundered it. Its factors, having charge over stores and furs of immense values, away off from white men or the eyes of any who could take an interest in watching them, have always been faithful to their trust. There is no record extant of a dishonest factor. No government, priest, or king ever had servants more faithful than have been the directors of this Honorable Hudson's Bay Company of fur-traders for the two hundred and twenty-eight years of its existence. Sugar-making was another pursuit which, if it did not add great wealth to the settler's pocket, at any rate increased his home comforts. The illustration on page 78 is a good representation of a sugar-making camp in the bush. The troughs at the foot of the trees receive the sap, which drips from a transverse slit in the bark, made by two blows of the hatchet, at some few feet above the ground. This trough was then no more than a hollowed-out half-log, the ends left closed. The sap runs best during the day, as the warmth of the sun draws it up to the branches. It is carried in pails to the great cauldrons, set over the fire on a cross limb, and poured into the one on the right side. When it has boiled, it is then transferred in rude ladles to the cauldron on the left, where it is further reduced by boiling, and becomes sugared sufficiently to ensure its hardening when poured into the pans and other receptacles. When hard, these are turned out and set upon cross sticks in tiers to dry the earliest sap which rises makes the lightest colored sugar the indians are about and assisting in the work they were always friendly never stole or deceived and were ever the white man's friend in upper canada those in the neighborhood of my grandfather's settlement were chiefly mississaugas every summer they went away to the small lakes north of ontario and came back in the fall for the salmon and sturgeon fishing living in lodges or wigwams these are covered with birch bark the illustration given on page eighty four is not overdrawn as a representation of an indian camp End of chapter three